Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. One of the, the most striking imagery uh, from the coronavirus crisis seems to be the, the conflict or perhaps even the incompatibility between science and faith. We've all seen the images of Liberty University refusing to, to close or the the, the various churchmen around America who, who are at gunpoint, it seems, still, uh, still holding their services and going off to jail as if they're Rosa Parks. So I've often thought about whether or not um, religion and science are indeed incompatible, especially contemporary religion or religious radicalism. Uh, one woman who has given this a great deal of thought, much more than me, is Catherine Stewart. She's the author of an extremely important new book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. Um, and she also uh, wrote a really compelling op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago called The Religious Rights Hostility to Science is Crippling Our Coronavirus Response. Uh, Catherine, before we get into the details, are is religion and science are they fundamentally incompatible? Are they naturally in conflict? Well, my concern here is really not with any particular religious creed. Um, my concern here is with a political movement that often cloaks itself in religious rhetoric and basically uses religion or uh, uses religious ideology or theological arguments um, as a justification for amassing political power. I mean, in general, are, are religion and science incompatible? I think that, as we've seen over time, there are uh, many religious individuals and groups that are utterly compatible with science. But there have also been other groups that have more of a longstanding hostility to certain types of scientific principles, to critical thinking, and to sort of the idea of expertise, um, and sort of insist on a kind of literalist understanding of their holy texts and, um, and uh, deny science when it appears to conflict with their holy texts. You call these people, Catherine, the power worshippers. Um, you describe them as the religious right. Earlier you suggested they're a political rather than a religious movement. Uh, what is the history of this movement? When did it begin? The movement has a, a long history in, uh, in our, our country. Um, I think back to, for instance, the pro-slavery theologians who uh, justified uh, the enslavement of other people with uh, the idea that um, there are sort of God established these hierarchies in the Bible. They conceived of America as an authentically Christian nation 
uh, rooted with sort of a root with, with the idea of these uh, hierarchies rooted in, in, in the Bible, um, the idea that America plays a unique role in sort of evangelizing the rest of the world. But it's really important to note that uh, religion is such a diverse, uh, so diverse in our country, always has been. I have a friend who participated in the creation of a book called the Christian, I'm, I'm sorry, a handbook of Christian denominations. They discovered over a thousand different distinctions. Um, even back then, there were many people who rooted their opposition to slavery in their Christianity as well. And I wrote about a, a dozen of those uh, figures in my book. Um, so, so, but we're, if we're talking about today's religious right, or what I sometimes like to call Christian nationalism, it does share a through line with this sort of very strict hyper-conservative understanding of religion um, drawing from you know, previous centuries into today. Who's the father of this? I assume it's a father rather than a mother. Well, there are many figures who've been important in the history of uh, this movement. I sometimes uh, like to think about people like Rusas John Rushduni, who is a very important mid-century theologian who uh, was sort of a, a godfather of today's you know, hyper-conservative Christian right. Um, he wrote uh, dozens of books, very prolific uh, the, uh, theologian. He was a father of a movement called uh, Christian Reconstructionism. And he drew on some of those pro-slavery theologians, their work. And he not only admired them in his work, but he actually reproduced some of their works uh, through his own publishing house, Ross House Books. And again, he endorsed these, this idea that America is created as an authentically Christian nation. He was very hostile to the idea of uh, women's equality, secularism. He uh, defended segregation, actually. He, um, he thought uh, desegregation well, was um, un, uh, you know, unbiblical. And uh, he, uh, some of his ideas are actually borrowed on or even reproduced by some of the leading thinkers of today's Christian nationalists. Now, they've, of course, become a bit more clever in sort of the messaging that they use and the battles that they pick. Catherine, you, you generously, I think, describe some of these people as theologians. You say that they were pro-slavery. Uh, they they believe that men were superior to women and whites superior, naturally, I assume, to blacks. Uh, at what point, though, do these so-called theologians simply become quacks? Uh, was there any religious seriousness? I mean, who 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 takes these so-called theologians seriously outside their own uh, fundamentalist groups? Well, they were. In, uh, the, if we're speaking about the pro-slavery theologians, they were incredibly influential in their era. I mean, let's remember that um, the denominations that they represented or supported were entrenched in uh, political power. You know, the um, the they were often allied with uh, moneyed interests, and many of the as as many of the theologians in the mid-century were allied with moneyed interests. I'm thinking about a figure like James Fifield, who started a movement called Spiritual Mobilization. He argued that uh, only conservative you know, religion could um, save America, and, and he was very deeply 
uh, worried about the New Deal. So he got money from plutocrats, the leaders of Sun Oil and Chrysler and other major movements. And he kind of united uh, the idea of an uh, hyper, uh, like almost libertarian economic theory with hyper-conservative religion. Uh, Rush Dooney was a big fan of uh, Fifield. I mean, th- these ideas are carried through to today. And if you're just, you know, we can call them quacks, but they are, you know, that's sort of a judgment. If you just sort of observe their influence over history, you can see that they, they really had quite a lot of influence, influence throughout history. And we're seeing the consequences of that today in the Trump administration. The religious right has long allied itself with that hyper-conservative, pro-libertarian um, economic wing of the Republican Party. And what that has done is, you know, heal, uh, hollow out the social safety net. Uh, members of the movement often cast any form of government assistance, unless it passes through churches first, as unbiblical. Um, some members of the leading policy groups, for instance, like Family Research Council, will say things like, food assistance or um, mm. housing aid are against the biblical model or unbiblical. Other Catherine, members- uh, let's step back for a moment. Uh, you are suggesting then that this, what you call the, the power worshippers or... I, I often refer to them as religious right or Christian nationalists. There Christian are m- many terms. Or, I, right. So, so yes. you, you trace the lineage of this back to the pro-slavery thinkers after the Civil War or during the Civil War. Um, Are you suggesting that this has reappeared or been uh, sort of has has, has been put into a new bucket and a a new bottle uh, and now is called uh, support for Donald Trump and is manifested not only in his thinking, but in people like Ben Carson and Alex Azar? I think, you know, look, religious movements are really complicated. And this one is more complicated than most. Um, uh, Because, you know, it has, there's not one founder of the movement. I think the idea of biblical literalism has been with us uh, for a very long time. I think there are many different leaders, uh, political leaders, uh, religious figures who have had influence in the movement. I don't think it's sort of, started at one particular, like in one day in one year, and then disappeared and then reappeared in the present moment. There, It's a kind of movement that's existed and shifted over time throughout history as other religious movements, for instance, a religious movement that has sort of um, uh, driven for social justice and equality has also uh, been with us for a long time and shifted through time and had different figures involved. But yes, I, I do actually think that um, some of those earlier figures have much in common with uh, Christian nationalists today. The idea that the United States is a redeemer redeemer nation chosen by God, that it should be an orthodox Christian republic in which women are subservient to men, education is in the hands of conservative Christians. These figures tend to hate public education with what they call government schools, and um, that no one pays taxes to support the poor. and that at some point America has deviated horribly from its mission, fallen under the control of atheist and or liberal elites. This is kind of a cornerstone of today's you know, hyper-conservative political uh, religious right or Christian nationalism. 
uh, Catherine, when we, how seriously should we take this movement? You, 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 you know it as perhaps as well as anyone. When we see the headlines uh, and the images of people demonstrating in Michigan, uh, looking as if they're about to go into war, claiming that they have that we should all have the right to work. Uh, when we see these churchmen defying the authorities and the police, are these just a, a lunatic fringe, or is this a serious? Are these people and their movement a serious player now in American politics? Well, you've, you've described three different groups, and so I want to address each of them. There's, they're, they're not all the same. So, for instance, do, do leaders of this movement have political access? Absolutely. Uh, many of the movement's leading figures have entrenched themselves into the highest levels of our governing institutions in, in ways that will long outlast the current administration. The movement long preceded Trump and it will long outlast him. So they and their supporters have spent hundreds of millions of dollars over decades building advocacy organizations, legal activist groups, think tanks, and political campaign infrastructure. Um, and they rely on the work of sort of pseudo-historians or uh, thinkers who manufacture an imagined past and engage in political activism with a specific goal that they and their political allies will dominate all aspects of society. So that's the first group. Do they have political power? Absolutely. Does the Christian nationalists have political power? Absolutely, they do. Second group you described was a, is the group that has been uh, organizing some of those scary demonstrations that we've all seen on television where people are toting guns and saying, you know, we want, you know, to, to, to you know, the lockdown orders are unfair and, and we're just going to, you know, end them now. And I think, you know, I, I, too, am very sympathetic to people's concerns about, you know, their economic futures, especially in a country where we don't really, you know, offer people um, the direct kind of aid that they might need to keep their children fed and their, you know, their, their rent paid. But I, do, I think it'd be, I'd be very careful about trying to identify the people in those demonstrations directly with mm. the religious right. Um, they seem often to be more connected to some of the right-wing libertarian groups, which even though there are alliances between the religious right and the sort of the, free, the, the religious fundamentalists and the free market fundamentalists, they're not quite the same group. There's an alliance there and some overlap, but there's also some separation. So we've learned that some of those, you know, Facebook advertisements for those uh, demonstrations were funded by some of the economic, right-wing economic policy groups. But I did not see any involvement of, you know, religious right groups in funding those ads or necessarily even encouraging those types of demonstrations at all. In fact, I think that um, most of the... Um, you know, they're, they're largely more representative of the economic right. And then the third group you mentioned was the churches. And I have to say, it was harder in the beginning, I think, for many members of this movement to take the issue of coronavirus seriously. And I'm just talking about, you know, a couple of months ago, not today. I think today everybody accepts that it's a real problem. And um, most people are really trying to... Um, you know, protect most pastors certainly are trying to protect their congregations, putting services online and the like. But it took perhaps a little longer in some of those hyper conservative and religious and hyper politicized communities 
because um, in in that world, there is a kind of um, um, the right wing propaganda sphere has played a role in fostering a kind of mistrust of fact based media and scientific expertise. I mean, um, they've been the rank and file have been told over and over to dismiss real news as so called fake news, and so the, it was easier for them to. Um, disregard public health warnings and evidence-based information that could help preserve and protect life. Um, so what ended up happening is that there was some number of, you know, relatively small number of pastors, but there were some who defied the stay-at-home orders um, because they sort of cast this as fake news and they literally cast it as an attack on the president, which was kind of astonishing and that's kind of part of the hyper-partisanization that this movement has brought to the Republican Party. Everything is um, cast as, you know, for us or against us. It, um, there was no interest in anything. Everything sort of spun for political gain. And so that's why so many of the movement leaders greeted news of the coronavirus as an insult to Trump. Jerry Falwell Jr., who runs Liberty University, went on Fox and Friends as late as mid-April, when it was sort of, I'm sorry, um, mid-March, it was clear to most people that this is really going to be a problem. He called reaction to coronavirus hype. And he, he said it was an attempt to get Trump. So one of the tragic casualties of this type of fact-free hyper-partisanship is a competent government. Catherine, um, I assume this is not this 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 movement that you describe is not part of what we might think of as the, the pacifist wing of the Christian movement. What is the relationship of these power worshippers, the the religious right, to violence? Do they justify violence when when necessary? Do they have uh, a cult, perhaps, of violence? I I wouldn't say that. Um, but what you said about the sort of um, uh, pacifist wing is really interesting. I find that uh, the religious right really um, uh, reserves some of its most contemptuous words for those who dare to identif- identify as Christians of a different sort. And let's remember that m- most Christians see their religion as having to do with loving their neighbor and um, uh seeing people as human beings rather than in, in just as tribe and, uh, you know, helping the poor and defending the least of these. But this is a movement that's really more about power and domination. And they're using their religion. It's like, it's really like a political movement that cloaks, cloaks itself in religious rhetoric. Um, and, you know, look, I think there are those that um, embrace pluralism and diversity and, attempt to advance their values in the public sphere by appealing to sort of universal values that everyone can share. And then, you know, Christian nationalism is a movement that tries to use the power of the state to impose their views on everyone else and kind of commandeer the public resources for themselves. And so I think of the latter as advocates for the development of a political religion, you know, one that's making use of theological frameworks in order to justify political power over other groups and, and people. And, um, you know, you could actually view this as a, as a kind of um, 
as a type of violence, I mean, not as a literal violence, but you can see it as a kind of attempt a metaphorical to erode, violence. Yes, a, a metaphorical violence, an attempt to erode the rights and dignity of others. Catherine, when you pair all this away, you've obviously spent a lot of time interviewing these people, watching them, writing about them, reading their texts. When you pair all this away, could one argue that really when it comes down to it, this is just a sort of a, a core white nationalism and that the real hatred in all this is against brown and black people, uh, especially given that, as you suggested at the beginning of this conversation, the origins of this movement um, can be traced back to the, 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 the pro-slavery uh, movement during the Civil War. You know, this movement today is often characterized as a white movement. I think it's certainly uh, largely white, but not entirely. I think for many people uh, of the white people in the movement, uh, certainly in the rank and file, it's an implicitly white movement. So for them, it's part of a vision that involves recovering a nation that was once supposedly both Christian and white. And so it's a form of identity politics in that it ties the idea of America to a specific set of approved religious and cultural identities. But, you know, leaders of the movement today understand that the electoral future of the movement is not ethnically homogenous. And many of them have been engaged in recent years to uh, get involved in racial reconciliation efforts. I think a lot of it has to do with trying to... um, include some conservative and Latin, uh, black and Latino pastors and other figures. So they try to draw these figures of color, you know, leaders of color, particularly um, pastors of color, if they're conservative leading, into the movement in order to peel off a some number of their votes. So, um, you know, they, the organizations like the Family Research Council, which is one of the leading policy groups of the religious right, it holds holds a number of um, outreach efforts specifically for Latino and Black pastors. And when you go to some of the gatherings that I've gone to, like Values Voters Conferences, um, Road to Majority Conferences, Marches for Life, the the rank and file are not all white. On the other hand, I have to say, um, members of the movement often paper over the ways in which hyper-conservative religion and racism can reinforce one another and, um, you know, they're also driving support for a political party, the Republican Party, that has made voter suppression and race-based gerrymandering of, uh, a key tool for winning elections. Catherine, finally, uh, a lot of people listening to this will be fascinated, but also mystified. Of, of course, they, they should all re- uh, read your book, The Power Worshippers. But what else might people read? We're stuck at home. We're trying to make sense of an increasingly complicated and and perhaps um, depressing world. How how would you suggest people uh, learn about uh, the, the the power worshippers, about the religious right? Are there a couple of books that really come to mind as introductions? I see that we should read their works because uh, it's extraordinary. A lot of times people say, well, is this some kind of conspiracy? And look, conspiracies take place under the cover of darkness with unnamed actors. This is a movement that is taking place out in the open. It's not that they're hiding. It's that we're not listening. When you read what they write, when you hear, listen to what they say, when you, not just when they're speaking to the general public, 
but in the forms that they share, the books that they publish for one another, um, it's all out there, there in the open. I think, and from by by seeing what they're doing, we can really learn from them. We can learn how they've sort of um, relied on unity to win elections. And the best work I can think of off the top of my head for this is the work of George Barna. He's one of the po- top pollsters of the movement. He wrote spell that. A, spell that, Catherine. How do you spell that? G e o r g e. Yeah. B- B-A-R-N-A, George Barna, and he wrote a book called um, The Day Christians Changed America. It's about the 2016 election. And in the book, he really showed that the most committed religious right voters, um, a group that he calls Sage Cons, which is a, a label that is an acronym for spiritually active, governance engaged conservatives, are disproportionately involved in the political process and vote in extremely high numbers. So according to Barna, this is just 10% of the population, but 91% of them turned out to vote in 2016. 91% and 93% of those cast their vote for Trump. So this is a group that um, punches above its political weight in terms of numbers because of their high level of voter engagement. And it hits home the fact that, yes, they're a minority of the population, but they win elections and gain political power because they're so united and so coherent. Um, Another movement leader, Ralph Reed, said something to the effect of, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, pay no attention to the polls. It doesn't matter what percentage of the population we are. That is shrinking. All that matters is who turns out on election day. They've all been reading Lenin, it sounds like, Catherine. (laughs) Indeed. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.